0: And welcome. Happy New Year. Hope you had a great holidays. Back to Episode 5 of the Hammer Time Podcast. I'm Ethan Hammerman at Ethan Ham on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a great, great show tonight. Really special guest. As you know, with every episode of this podcast, we're going to cover three main areas. The first being sports. Talk about what's been going on. Our guests' personal likes and dislikes in the world of sports. Then we're going to head on over to society, talk about what's happening in the world, and then stuff where we hit off on every single other random point. My guest tonight is somebody very special who I think you all know. You may not love, you may have a strong opinion on, though. Oh, Davis, the
1: audience of this podcast is probably super anti-Davis
0: Well, the audience of this podcast is going to have to get used to it because Davis Matic is here. Davis, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing, I'm
1: doing great, man. Thank you very much uh, for having me.
0: So to start, actually, why don't you tell the good people listening about yourself and how you got into Daily Fantasy, because you are one of the biggest Daily Fantasy aficionados that I know. Yeah, uh,
1: I mean, how far, do you want me to go, like, way, way back, like, like the whole story, or what's
0: up? Let's hear the Davis-matic life story, I'm ready for it.
1: I was born in Billings, Montana, on August 19th, 1992, I moved to Kansas when I was, like, months old my parents moved to be closer to their family um, most of the most of the details of me growing up are I don't know pretty standard but I played in my first fantasy league when I was 10 uh, my mom worked at the newspaper in Salina Kansas where I was born or was raised pretty much where I went to school and uh, I won that league and it was actually a salary cap format so every week you know you picked a roster of players who had a salary so very 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 to the concept that would become Daily Fantasy.
0: I got to ask, though, was that like the SI Kids Fantasy League, like the bad stuff that was happening when we were really, no, really young?
1: No. it was like uh, my, the guys who worked in the sports department at the Salina Journal, was the paper, devised this like salary cap game, pretty much. That's pretty and, awesome. Yeah, and I won that. And so that kind of basically started it. My dad is a, a huge football fan, Dallas Cowboys, Oklahoma Sooners football fan. And, uh, yeah, just kind of, I've always really loved football, fell out of following it for like probably five years when I was in late middle school and high school when I did my skateboarding adventure. Um, but when I graduated high school and I moved away to go to college, I didn't have anyone to skateboard with. So I got way back into sports. Um, and I was an English major in college and I've always loved writing. And one day my grandma sent me an email Um, She saw, like, this one blog was, like, looking to pay someone $25 an article to write NFL articles, and that's how I got into the writing and just kind of being on Twitter and and getting fantasy advice from, like, I remember, like, tweeting, like, Evan Silva and Denny Carter, like, start sit questions back in the day, and uh, I was like, I know, I know, I know just as much as Denny Carter. I know just as much as these guys, and I started my own blog in um, November of 2012, and uh, found Daily Fantasy, basically, from advertisements on podcasts.
0: That's rad as hell. But let's circle back for a second. You mentioned a skateboarding adventure in there. I want to hear a little bit about that. Dude,
1: I was, uh, I was like a, I don't know, not semi-pro. I was, uh, I was a sponsored skateboarder in high school from, like, ages 14 to 16, Um wrote got got product from a couple really big companies out in california um traveled all over the country like everywhere to go to skateboarding contests and to go film uh made a lot of skateboarding videos they're still up on youtube if uh if anyone wants to watch them just send me an ad after you listen to this and I'll, i'll send you a link um yeah, it was like that was like really big in my formative years. It also got me super into drugs. I went to I went to uh, drug rehab at, at sixteen. I've been so I'm like I don't know. I guess the people would say straight edge now, but I don't drink or, or smoke weed. Um, so, but those those two adventures were like linked.
0: Yeah, you got to grow up quick when you're in automatically sort of thrown into the world of skateboarding. I have friends who peaked really early. One of my pretty good friends. In high school, who I actually punked in fantasy football on the regular in high school, he was an actor growing up, and he played some major animated acting roles, and I know that his life was crazy from the get-go, so definitely a lot of respect for that. I do wish that Davis Maddox Pro Skater came out so we could all play it, but unfortunately it wasn't meant to be. Instead, we yeah, are talking about had, daily like, fantasy dudes here.
1: we were like uh, in the Tony Hawk games? Though, like I met a bunch of like really cool, awesome, famous skateboarders, which
0: was awesome. So, who was the who was the coolest and who was the worst?
1: Well, the coolest is my boy. My boy Sean Malto, I've known him since he was twelve. He's been on ESPN. People might know who he is. Um, he was like the coolest dude I've ever met. Like he was from Kansas City, and he, he like you know made it made it real big. Is uh is very I don't know. He's very successful. Um, I met everyone. Everyone knows Rob deerdick I met I met Rob Dyrdek, um at his Skate Plaza in Ohio one trip when I went out there. He was a he was a pretty cool dude. I never. I never met, like, Sheckler. I guess people probably know who he is. I never met Tony Hawk. I didn't meet anyone like
0: that. Still pretty cool. I mean, got to meet Dyrdek. That's definitely yeah, was, uh, on the goals was, uh, level. Uh, he was a cool guy. Totally. So, getting back into daily fantasy sports, you play a little bit of every single sport, I'm guessing, but what is your favorite one to play?
1: Um, oh, dude, soccer. Uh, Champions League. Champions League DFS on DraftKings is my, like, number one favorite. Why? Um, the scoring... Basically makes it so that the edge is pretty big. Like it's if you don't watch the sport, if you don't follow it, it's pretty hard. And uh, like I was never a soccer fan at all until DraftKings released their their product for it. And uh, it was just an amazing sport to watch, dude. Like there's always something happening. And I, I read this book called Inverting Inverting the the Pyramid, which or Inverting the Diamond. One of the two, but it's about soccer tactics. And ever since I read that book, just like seeing all the spatial stuff happening on the field is like. It's amazing. It's like everything that goes into football tactics, except it's happening every single second.
0: So you also ended up supporting a team, correct? I believe Chelsea. No, no, I'm a I'm a fan of, of Dortmund. They're in the they're in the German league. Okay, respect. What drew you to Dortmund?
1: They're the fast. They well, okay. So when I got into soccer, was in was in like 2014. They were the fastest team in FIFA. Um, so they were always the team that I would play with online. And I was like, well, I should watch these guys. And I just watched them play. And it's like every theory I have about like wide receivers in football was like pu- played out on the field for them. Their, their goal was just to be more athletic and faster and more aggressive than every other team that they played against. And it was just amazing to watch.
0: Yeah, I totally got fucked over when I picked my at least Premier League team. I still haven't really committed to teams in other leagues, although I would say that I would support Barcelona over Madrid because Madrid is a bunch of jerks. I don't like them. But I picked Aston Villa in 2010, and that was when they had, like, Ashley Young and Milner and Agban Lahore and all this crazy talent. And then within two months later, they got rid of all of them. They lost their manager, and now they're going to be relegated. They have, like, five points this year. They're so bad. So. Yeah, they are. I I've kind of hopped on the
1: Leicester City bandwagon. I don't really have oh, yeah. I don't really have like one EPL team I support. I kind of just sweat the players, which is actually kind of how I view the NFL now. Um, but I, I Leicester City, like for I don't know, no one listens to this. No one like probably follows the English Premier League, but it would basically be the equivalent of like. I don't know, the the Rams winning a Super Bowl or something. Like, they're just a total nothing team. They've never won anything, and they're currently second place in the league right now.
0: It would be the equivalent of the University of South Carolina coming to the NFL with their team currently constituted and then winning a Super Bowl, probably. Right, yes, exactly. I mean, they got Marez though, who's a monster. That guy is crazy good. Uh, although I know there's been some controversy about Jamie Vardy, and he's a little bit of a Question mark, a racist. You know, definitely we'll just call a spade a spade. He's a racist off the pitch, but on the pitch, I mean, he's a pretty darn good striker. Although I know this is something that you have definitely taken strong stances on before. If you were the manager of Leicester City, I mean, with a guy like Jamie Vardy, uh, with what he said, do you think that the team did enough? Do you think that he was punished enough for what he said?
1: Well, it's, it's hard to say because, like, I don't – because like, I don't follow, like, it as closely as I follow, you know, American sports. But, like, I would say that if, like, an American athlete did something like that, they would be more ostracized than um, – than Vardy has been. Uh, the, racism is actually a super prevalent problem in soccer. Like it's really bad. Um, there, there was like talk. There, there still is talk of like uh, African American, not African American, just African players boycotting um, the 2018 World Cup because Russian soccer is so very racist.
0: And I also think, I mean, you have an example of a player who isn't quite as good as Jamie Vardy, but Riley Cooper in the NFL. When he said what he said that was racist, he sort of was able to, granted with a ton of scrutiny, he didn't lose his job. He got right back on the track and kept on rolling. And Vardy's racist tirade was directed toward Asians, I believe, in particular, and it seemed like he didn't really get a lot of criticism for that. But moving on from racial controversy, talking about DFS and journalists said soccer's your favorite sport. I know that there are a ton of other sports out there that I've recently been trying that are so much fun that people don't really know about. One that I really like is golf. I had a uh, really, golf, golf, really good 10. time like doing US Open, doing some of the tournaments there. What are some other underrated daily fantasy games that you think more people should be into? Uh,
1: I mean, golf would definitely be the I should think everyone should try it out because you get to sweat for four days, especially for the the you know the big tournaments like for the majors. It's super fun. They're, they have the Millionaire Maker. I love I love all of that. Um, hockey is fun. NBA is very fun. Like I, the only ones, the only ones I don't play is I don't do the MMA and I don't do the uh, the NASCAR.
0: It's a little bit too simplistic in some ways. MMA, at least I don't know about that, but. NASCAR might be fun. I used to really like NASCAR actually back in the day. I used to like be a well, bit if of don't, a fanatic. If I don't
1: watch the sport. There's no point in playing it. Like I'll watch all of these other sports, but like I don't I couldn't name I couldn't name one NASCAR driver. J- or Jimmy Johnson, I guess.
0: Yeah, I used to be super into NASCAR. It's funny in fact. I have seen a couple of races before and I think over time I just got kind of bored by the entire thing and focus on other sports instead. My favorite driver was always Matt Kenseth. I think it might have just been the color scheme and also the fact that he was super consistent and was always in the top five of every single race, but that was definitely my main man there. I know across all of these sports, you have certain favorites, certain players who have willed you to victory in certain occasions. I'm going to pull a bit of a Bill Simmons here. Who is on the davis matic Mount Rushmore of clutch fantasy players across any sport.
1: I can go every sport. NFL, David Johnson, that's super obvious. College football, Baker Mayfield, quarterback for uh, for my Sooners. Um, soccer would be Dario Serna, who is uh, a fullback for Shakhtar Donetsk of the Ukrainian League. Uh, NHL, Tyler Sagan, PGA, Brooks Kepka. Brooks Kepka might be like a, a top five favorite athlete for me. Um, baseball would be John Jaso. I actually have an autographed baseball right here from John Jaso. Do you know who got
0: this for me, Ethan? I do know who got that for you, actually. It's Boy, my good friend Boy Grant Gertin. Yeah. But... Me up. No, that's super cool. I mean, I've seen the Brooks tweets for sure. Uh, I've seen David Johnson was someone who I was super high on this year as well. Sagan is a funny, funny guy. I'm still mad that the Bruins traded him, because apparently the reason why they heard of him is because he basically spent every single night just getting totally blasted and, like, fucking every single girl in Boston. And that was what he just did. I remember that I was covering, back in the day when I actually covered more live games than I do now, I was covering a Bruins game, and he was a healthy scratch, probably because he did something stupid for some reason, and he just comes up in the press box and just starts drinking a beer and hanging out with the media. And you're just like, yeah, I'm Tyler Sagan. I was like, awesome, this is really cool. You're younger than me, and actually, now that I think about it, I was 20 at the time, so you probably shouldn't have been drinking, but it's still pretty cool that you're here.
1: I would love to hang out with Tyler Sagan. I feel like he would be a good time. That was, like, just a terrible, terrible move by Boston. Yeah,
0: my other Tyler Sagan story is that when they won the Cup in 2012, they went to the Harvard Lampoon for a secret party, And a friend of mine ended up going there, and I heard that Tyler Sagan was, like, the star of the party and basically had a line outside of his room with girls. And was just, like, in, out, in, out. Like, he just knew what was going on. He just, he was living the life. He's, like, 20 years old and just doing what he wants in Boston. And now he's a superstar in Dallas because all the Boston brass are dumb. But we're not going to get into that too much. He's He's, like, the top goal scorer in
1: the NHL, and he got traded for, like, a bunch of
0: nothing. I mean, the one good thing is that the Bruins have passed their knack, I think is going to be really good. But otherwise, it's just sad how that team has fallen. It makes me really, really sad. So, what is the biggest one-day fantasy win you've ever had?
1: March 13th, uh, 2014, um, I won like $12,000 on Draft Street because I had... I had the stone cold nuts NBA lineup in every contest. Like it was like the best possible combination, and I won um, the two dollar, five dollar, twelve dollar, fifty five dollar GBPs uh, for NBA on Draft Street. It was it was now this was, that was back when daily fantasy was not near as big and the prize pools were much smaller. Uh, but that was like the the best single day I've ever had.
0: And then on the other side of the spectrum, what was the worst tilt that you ever had?
1: There's been so many. There's been so many. You can name
0: a couple. It's okay.
1: Well, all the injuries of the running backs this last year, the Devonta Freeman mid-game concussion, the Le'Veon Bell torn ACL, the Jamal Charles torn ACL. Uh, There was two years ago uh, San Antonio Spurs, um, San Antonio Spurs Minnesota Timberwolves game in Mexico City. that got canceled because the building caught on fire. Um, last year in the NBA, Dion Waiters and J.R. Smith got traded for each other ostensibly, and both of them were in my lineup, so I got two zeros from them. Very, very, very brutal stuff.
0: Yeah, those all sound pretty, pretty bad. Daily Fantasy, I think, now has sort of hit the saturation point. I remember when I was a little bit more involved in the space in 2013, when I was doing more stuff for Fanium, which was our fantasy app which then pivoted to daily fantasy that it was a little bit of a smaller pool as you said while the public have more of a chance to get into it now i do think there was a little bit more accessibility when it came to really getting started i think that and we're going to get into this a little bit more later as well but it seems a little bit more daunting now for the average person to get into daily fantasy without a huge bankroll or what would be your advice for someone who wants to get into daily fantasy Don't invest any
1: more money than you're comfortable with and uh, find a site, uh, you know, uh, of reliable people that you that you trust and and use their advice to to learn, you know, not not just to copy picks, but to learn the ins and outs of the sports that you want to play and develop your own methodology. And uh, don't don't like chase after like the big, you know, million dollar prize pools at first because the you know, the probability of winning there is so low.
0: Yeah, I remember my first fantasy daily game that I ever played, and this is actually a story that I haven't told lot before, but I was living with Grant at the time in San Diego and working on Fanium, and it was a college football week one 2013 daily fantasy game, and I remember I was in a 10-person league on DraftKings, and for some reason I was doing extremely, extremely poorly, and then all of a sudden... I had a stack of whoever Washington's quarterback was at the time. I think it was Keith Price, if I recall correctly. And their backup tight end because Austin and Jenkins was out of the game. And the guy caught three touchdown passes. And I ended up losing by one point to Max DeLurie, who is uh, Max. a fantasy guy as well. So that was my first brush with almost fame in daily fantasy. That would have been really cool, but... You know, it is what it is. And I do actually love playing college. It's so much fun. We're going to circle back to football for just a quick second because you are pretty well known for your wide receiver takes. Stephen Hill, Jeff Janis, Odell Beckham. Although you did, we we know why that was wrong, so that's fine. So looking at this year's group, uh, is there anyone who sticks out to you as potentially being really, really good or being really, really overrated? (laughs)
1: Like, Corey Coleman is going to be, and Sterling Shepard also is going to be really good. Uh, Tyler Boyd is going to be really good. Corey Davis for Western Michigan is going to be really good. I don't know, I don't know, like, how, like, I don't, because I don't really follow, like, you know, no draft next stuff, honestly. Like, uh, Doxon will be really good. I don't know. I, like, I'm not going to be on Michael Thomas. Do people like Michael Thomas? They do. Yeah, Michael Thomas, like, he had, like, eight touchdowns this last year, right? Like, I don't know. Corey Coleman had, like, 25. People just, are... just seemed, It just seems like one of those guys is very obviously very good at playing football, and one of them is not so much.
0: People seem to be getting down on Corey Coleman a little bit, which I find really interesting because I personally think that he's my top receiver in this class. He's so explosive and dynamic, and he can really get open wherever he wants. I think his route running is sick. And people like Treadwell, and I don't think Treadwell's bad, but I also think Treadwell's being a little bit overrated. He reminds me of Alshon Jeffrey at best. So, yeah, I would I still think, take him in the I first round. Jeffrey is like an amazing con for him. I would still take him in the first round, but I'm not sure I would take him over Coleman, who I think could be an Antonio Brown type. And I'm totally with you on Sterling Shepard. Sterling Shepard is a monster. He could and be the be player... Like a, It's sort of that thing when you watch a guy you know. Like with Tyler Lockett last year, when you watched him, you knew that he had this special second gear, this ability to get open and make plays. And Sterling Shepard, I mean, it's been evident since he was a sophomore. This guy is just going to be a superstar. He's going to be really, really good. Boyd, I don't think he's going to test very well. But I'm also a little bit wary that he might be pulling a Stefan Diggs on all of us, and he just was injured all year or really beaten up, and he's going to go into the NFL fresh and playing really well. So, we'll keep an eye on that. And I'm not sure Davis is coming out. I thought that he I actually, had... I actually think I just saw that he's not, which is, like, really annoying. I think the funny thing is that uh, his teammate, Braverman's coming out instead. And he's someone yeah, and, who... and
1: Braver, see, like, Braverman will be the guy who, like... He'll probably get a little
0: bit overdrafted. We'll see. I mean, I actually, when I watched him, he reminded me of Edelman, who I think is probably a pretty good comparison for him. But I also don't think that I would take Braverman until the very least day three. I would not yeah, I, waste I, a like, high pick. Like,
1: you take Sterling Shepherd. Like you, you get like Sterling Shepard's going to go in like the fourth round, and he's he's super 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 good.
0: Yeah, Sterling Shepard is going to be a really good player, I think. Is
1: Rashard Higgins coming out this year? Uh, He might
0: be. I'm not sure entirely. If if he comes out, I would like him as a day... Like, he'll be a day three guy who can can make... Like, he can make an NFL roster. I can definitely get behind that. I think he's really good. So, moving on now, we're actually going to shift gears a little bit. So, that was the end of our sports segment. We're going to move on to society now. And you've had quite... crazy life experience you sort of just talked about it a little bit what do you think informs your own personal worldview um
1: well i didn't grow up in like a christian church so like that's a lot of it like uh just those sensibilities those conservative sensibilities were just never really a part of of my upbringing at all um i went to a unitarian universalist church um I guess it's actually a fellowship, and that you know the the general the general thing I was always taught growing up was um, you know treat others how you would like to be treated, and love is like the most powerful human emotion, and we should do our best always to be compassionate and understanding, even if we if we don't agree or if we haven't had similar life experiences.
0: In addition, with that philosophy, I know we've talked about philosophy a lot. Uh, what other philosophers really inspire you?
1: Um, well, so I took this religious education class when I was, uh, like 13, 14 and I, you know, I went to Jewish synagogue, Buddhist temple, Hindu temple, uh, Muslim mosque, Catholic church, had conversations with all these holy men. Um, and, uh, I, I really like religious philosophy in general. I've read all the existentialist stuff, uh, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, um, you know, all of those guys, uh. In terms of like one philosopher that inspires me, I, I'm more inspired by writers than than philosophers. I think I think that some of the best ideas come through just like the truth that is presented in in poems and in fiction. I think I like I like I like creative creativity better than I like straight philosophical essays.
0: I totally also agree with that, and I think that there are a lot of different ways that really intense themes and concepts can come across to a wide variety of audiences by using different mediums. I'm a huge advocate for alternative mediums as opposed to just books and TV for consuming media. I think that gaming, I think that comics, I think those are all really solid ways to engage with those types of text and those types of ideas that you can't necessarily do just by looking at words on a page. So definitely all about that. Now, you said that you went from place to place to all these holy places in your own sort of journey for spirituality and for this class. What was the most interesting thing that you learned when you were on that journey?
1: Well, I think one of the, one of the the craziest things to me was that, um, the, the Muslim uh, imam that we spoke with, like, had more in common with the Catholic priest that we spoke to than, like, anyone else that we met. They were, like, very similar men. Um, they, they were both, like, you know, very anti-gay and, uh, you know, kind of politically conservative. And, uh, like, I just, I just thought that was really interesting.
0: And yet, these two people, had they met before, or is there some sort of interfaith community there, or is it the no, kind of no, thing? No, no,
1: they were just, like, they were both just kind of, like, gruff men in their 60s, um, and they, you know, they were both, you know, they were both obviously very involved in their religion, um, and, uh, they were, they were just, like, It just struck me how similar their worldview was, right? Like, the way in which their faith, you know, kind of just kind of made them look at the world the same way, even though, you know, the public would just assume that they were enemies. That is
0: a really stirring point. I know that my dad's a rabbi, and one of... Oh, nice, dude. Yeah. Now, everybody knows, but one of the things that he's been really involved in, in our community at home, is he does a lot of interfaith stuff, so... He's a conservative rabbi, which, for those who don't know, means that he is in between the Orthodox movement, which is definitely the more right-wing Jewish movement, and the Reform movement, which is more of a left-wing movement. My dad would probably consider himself more on the left-wing side of that. He almost considered himself a Reconstructionist rabbi, but he was ordained by the conservative rabbinate, so he's in the middle. And what they would do in Stanford is that he was the representative of their council of rabbis to the interfaith council. So he has a really close friend who's an imam. He has a really close friend who's a Catholic priest. He has a really close friend who's a Protestant priest. And they would all come together if there were any major issues that had to be discussed, if there were any attacks by any communities. I don't know if in your experience with religion, did you sort of see that intersectionality across all of them? Or did did you see some differences as well that you thought were particularly interesting? I mean, I just, holy
1: men of all, of all denominations are just so intelligent, you know, and, and most of them are very not outside of being book smart. They're also very emotionally intelligent. Um, you know, I, I've come across, you know, some, some pastors who I, I disagreed with, you know, and, and who I think don't really follow the main tenets of their religion. and, and that's, you know, been true both, um, you know, and stuff I've read about the Muslim faith, um, about Catholics, about Protestants. Um, you know, but just in general, uh, people who are doing religion right are, are doing it, you know, to make the world a better place, to love people rather than to exclude people. You know, because that to me, that's what loving God, being a, a you know a person of God means. I'm I'm not religious at all. I don't I don't go to any you know service. I don't go to any temple, any church. You know, my my spirituality is, is separate from any entity or organized religion, but, um, I, you know, I would never begrudge anyone their faith, you know what I'm saying?
0: Oh, totally. I personally don't go that often to synagogue anymore. I would still consider myself Jewish, but I definitely could be more observant in certain regards. I do try to make a point of keeping some traditions, but if someone is strong in their religion, I think it's a beautiful thing, and I respect that for sure. I mean,
1: my my big thing is just don't, don't push it on people. You know, I think that it's not right for everyone. I think that no one has a monopoly on God.
0: Totally. And I think also part of that is don't take everything at face value because one important thing to remember about religion and about any of these philosophies is that we know more now than we did back then. And things have changed and it's important to apply the principles that religion has given us and to set them moving forward, because, you know, the golden rule's a great rule, and it's important. You shouldn't be a douche. Like, that's a really good rule that religion teaches us, but it's also something that, if you take it too literally, other things in the Bible, you can sort of twist things and make it a little bit more difficult. Any
1: religious religious book, the Hindu Hindu scriptures, um, you know, the the Bhagavad Gita, stuff like that, like... um, Uh, the Quran, like all of it has elements of of violence, you know, and and that's why, you know, religious, religious, or uh, extremist Muslims, extremist Christians, like they're, they're, it's, it's bad, you know, that's not, that's not really what your God intended. Your God didn't intend you to hurt anyone. So you, you probably shouldn't.
0: And especially this year, at least to me, with a lot of the brutality that's been happening, both abroad and also at home, it really has struck me like, it's become harder for me to recognize how someone can actively want to kill somebody actively want to erase somebody's life. It's become absolutely impossible for me to rationalize what could make someone hate another person so much that they would want to see them dead and erase all of the work and all of the love that had been given to them to get them to that point. The the Paris
1: attacks were like very like, that like kind of like put me in a mood for like a, Week or so, man. Because not not just because of the evil involved, but because you know our world's response was not a loving one. Uh, the response in the United States was very racist and violent. It was you know we got to get these we got to get these fucking Muslims out of our country was was the response that I heard a lot. You know, and that's that's fear mongering, and our our politicians, um, you know, were are following along with it. And it's just it's very sad to me, man. It's very we should be we you know we're. We're a very lucky country. People who live in the United States, I think, don't realize how lucky we are to live here. You know, the poorest, the poorest American has more than, you know, a lot of people in, in the Middle East and in developing countries have. And, and we, don't, we don't feel the need to, to share or, or to welcome people. We're, we're very Zionist almost, and it's, it's just very sad.
0: And, I mean, right now my brother is teaching at an Israeli-Arab school in Tel Aviv. And recently in Israel, there have been a lot of stabbings, random stabbings of both sides, but primarily Palestinian stabbing Jews. And my brother actually wrote about it recently, and he's saying he's watching himself, but there's a shooting at a restaurant that he goes to all the time, and luckily he wasn't there, on Dizengoff Street, which is the main street in Tel Aviv. And my parents are going over there to see him, and it's a little bit nerve-wracking since I'm going to be at home, and they're is a lot going on and i would just hope that nothing bad happens to them while they're there and it just stinks to be in that mindset and i can't imagine what it must feel like for someone to constantly be in that mindset like i luckily only have to deal with it for hopefully a week to 10 days some other people have to deal with it their entire lives and that's just unfathomable to me
1: i just i it's unfathomable i'm I'm very privileged man i'm a I'm a white male in the United States of America like it doesn't get any higher on the on the food chain of, of privilege than that you know, so it's just a lot of this stuff I can't even imagine having to struggle through on a daily basis
0: definitely so moving back to as you said, creativity really drives you and inspires you. You talked about philosophers earlier and you mentioned that specific works are really what you find the most inspiring, what works have you read or experienced that you feel like opened your mind to the world the most? Uh, well, and we'll
1: talk about it in a little bit, so I'll, I'll leave this be, but life of pie for sure. Um, uh, specific, specific works of art that have, have really shaped my worldview. Um, basically everything Charles Bukowski has ever written. He's like my, kind of my favorite writer. Um, Shakespeare, uh, Hamlet is uh, is an amazing, amazing piece of art. It just really kind of gets at the nature of of what it is to be human. Uh, Hemingway, Hemingway's works uh, are. It's very it's it's the it's the human it's the human condition um, at its most violent and, and at its ugliest right like I think a lot of people think Hemingway is a, a beautiful writer but a lot of what he wrote was actually very very brutal and uh, and sad but in a, in a very truth telling way uh, Old Man and the Sea is is kind of just this really depressing story you know about how uh, the world about this, this man who just doesn't have a lot left but his ability to fight. And, uh, it's kind of sad. It's kind of sad that he basically dies fighting against what sustained him. I don't know. I, I I read, I had to read so much as an undergrad. It just, some you know, when I'm put on the spot, I can't really remember everything that impacted me, I suppose.
0: Definitely understand that. And this is actually a perfect segue. So we're going to move off of society and into stuff now. Okay. We might circle back to it in a little bit or talk about some of the other things that we had to come up with, but... I do want to talk about Life of Pi because I know it's really important to you. Why does this work inspire you so much?
1: So, in the book, Piscine Patel is, uh, he is Catholic, he is, uh, Muslim, and he is a Hindu. And, uh, at one point in, in the, the first act of the novel, um, his, his imam, his priest, and, uh, and uh, his Buddhist priests, they all meet up in the, in the center square and basically get into an argument. They're like, you know, Basin belongs to us. No, he belongs to us. No, he belongs to us. And uh, finally he gets to, they let Basin talk. And, uh, you know, he's like, I, I'm, you know, I'm very sorry all of you are upset, but all, all I want to do is, is love God. And in that that way of looking at the earth... And looking at the society that humans have created all, all over our planet and, and all this, this stupid shit that we bicker about and kill each other for, um, you know, it's just all we should be trying to do is, is doing our best to love God or, or to, to create and make the world a better place than me. And also, the, you know, the main point of that novel is that narrative is important. Stories are important. What is, what is to say that stories and narratives are, are not true? Because almost everything we believe is based off of a narrative. You know, most religions are based off of a narrative. Most personal philosophies are explained to children, to, you know, kids in high school on narratives. And, um, you know, the. Well, all right, spoiler alert, anyone who has never read the book, stop listening now or, or keep listening. It doesn't really matter. But the adventure that this boy goes on is basically he's stranded on, uh, on the ocean on a lifeboat with a tiger. And then at the end of the novel, uh, basically it all kind of fades to black and he wakes up in a hospital room and he has to explain to these insurance agents what happened. And he tells them the story of basically the book, everything that happened in the book, all these fantastical tales with animals and carnivorous islands and all this shit. And then they said, that's not real. Well, then he tells a story about. You know, something much more likely, which basically includes him having to see his mother get eaten in front of him and having to kill the guy who does it. And it's a much more brutal, nasty, ugly story. And the the enduring message of the novel is you have to choose what you believe in. You, you construct your own narratives. And just because it's a narrative doesn't mean that it's not real to you. And um, I guess I've just kind of always really bought into that idea that narratives are super, super important.
0: That is great. I have not read the book, actually, so now I'll never be able to read it. But I didn't see yeah, the movie, no. so I knew yeah, I already knew what happened. Just because it's so beautiful. I already knew what happened, and it is an amazing movie. I was actually playing a game recently, and this is just another example of how you spoke about love. And I'm not going to spoil this game that much because I think everyone, if you have $10 and you have Steam, you should buy it. But it's called Undertale. And it's getting a lot, a lot of hype recently of being this throwback earthbound game uh, that was literally made by this guy in Game Maker. And it's gone viral. And essentially, the main plot of the game is that you are a human and you fall into the underground, which is a world entirely inhabited by monsters. And long ago, the humans and the monsters lived together, and then there was a fight. And the humans pushed the monsters underground because the humans are stronger than the monsters and they were able to overcome them. So you are this little child who is underground and it is your goal to get back above ground. And throughout the journey, you do not have to kill a single character in order to win the game. You can make it through this entire game just by loving other people instead of tearing them down. And... Again, not going to spoil too much, but I would recommend that people play it. It's really good. But I think that goes with Life of Pi's message as well that, as he said in the town square, love is important. And I think we often do forget that it is said in the Bible as well to love the stranger and to open yourself up to new ideas and to never look to fight because. Or at least not at first glance, because that's something that is not the way that we are supposed to act as humans. It's not what, if you believe in God, what God yeah, made just, us to would, do. You would
1: be hard-pressed in any, in any religion, if you were a serious student of the scripture, to find more justification for violence and exclusionary policies than love and inclusion. Like... Any 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 person you hear using their religion to exclude someone or to hate someone is probably not using the scripture of that given religion properly.
0: Agreed. Although, there are some other... This is a whole other podcast about the historical Jesus, which I'm not going to get into, because that's a whole other interesting can of worms. Uh, but Jesus was someone who, while the Bible did sugarcoat him a little bit, and he preached a lot of love in person. Uh, the guy was a bit of a warmonger, at least according to the historical facts uh, that surround Jesus. I mean, this is a guy who was trying to fight for space in the Temple Mount and he fought any way he could to get that space. So I don't
1: I don't know a ton about historical Jesus. That's uh that's a leak, that's a leak in my personal education.
0: There's some awesome awesome literature about it. I took a class in college about Apocalyptic literature and the apocalypse in general. And within that class, we talked about Jesus and about how he really made his mark on the Temple Mount and began to have people believe in him. Because, I mean, if you think about it, like Christianity now would take for granted that it's the world's most dominant religion. But in reality, Jesus started from somewhere, he started from the bottom, uh, and now he's here. So, what ended up happening is that Jesus had a rival, and it was John. This preacher named John and Jesus were rivals on the Temple Mount, and Jesus did some shit to make sure that he could fight against John, and all of a sudden, John wasn't a problem anymore. Uh, Jesus enraptured people by talking about the apocalypse. He told them that if they followed somebody else, that they would maybe not burn in the afterlife, per se, specifically but that there would be consequences. And that is how fire and brimstone sort of began to come to be. It then intertwined with the Jewish concept of Gehenna, which is sort of a purgatory, but has fire involved with it. It's underground. And it began to percolate from there, the concept of hell. And then apocalyptic literature built on that and created all these other concepts. It's super interesting. I definitely recommend studying it. It's really fascinating If you have time, yeah, dude, that's a lot. I didn't know like any of that. Yeah, Jesus was an interesting guy, not a bad guy. Like, I don't think that he necessarily would have been a total douche. He just didn't like that other guy, and he was competitive. He's a businessman. He wants people to believe in him. You know, he's got to spread the word, and all those guys are charismatic to a degree. Yeah. So, moving on from Life of Pi, we're talking about another book series that I know that we both really like, and that's Harry Potter. Uh, Harry Potter has been a huge part of my life uh, yeah. for a long time. And the most important question, of course, rate the books. One one to seven, just write them down. Um,
1: Prisoner of Azkaban was my favorite, because I loved Sirius. Um, then uh, Order of the Phoenix. Then... I don't know, after that, like, uh, like I think like the 6th and the 7th book are right after that, and then the 2nd and the 1st, just because those were, you know, kind of more children's books. But I think that would be the order I would have them. But the 3rd and the 5th are my favorite, just because there's so much serious in them.
0: I think you might have stolen my sheet that i wrote written my book list on, because I pretty much totally agree. 3rd and the 5th are my top two. I think because they got a little bit more serious... Uh, and they also had serious in them right the serious twist in the third book is where that book series became yes. one of the best of all time. That twist was the most surprising thing that I have ever read in a book, especially considering how young I was when I first read it. It was mind blowing and I honestly I can think of some that rival it but the pure turning of the entire situation on its head, and then yeah. rereading that book, it's just scary. And then also, you had Buckbeak in that, you had the Time Turner, you and had... the Time Turner, like,
1: I mean, all those books are just, like, incredible, really.
0: That movie's the best movie, too, in my opinion. I really, I, I really, really like that movie. I really liked the seventh movie. Nothing happens in it, but I just really liked it. Oh, uh, the, the first part? Yeah, yeah, like, the, the moments between Hermione and Harry... The, in the that movie just were like really good made me happy I I like the fourth book too uh, I know you didn't really mention it I would, yeah, probably, yeah, I, Fire is also I would probably put that above the Half-Blood Prince to be honest I didn't think the Half-Blood Prince was very good I'd probably go third, fifth, fourth seventh, sixth, one, two Chamber of Secrets is a crap book it's the worst of the series by far all the other ones are better I almost stopped reading the series after Chamber of Secrets is there,
1: yeah, it just, uh, it was just, like, you didn't really, because you didn't really care
0: about Jenny. Yeah, like, we didn't know anything about her yet. She was just Ron's annoying little sister. Yeah, exactly. It was, like, why do we care? And Gilroy Lockhart was awful. It was just not a good book. Who was your favorite character, or, I guess, your top favorite characters? I mean, we all like Harry, Ron, Hermione, but... Yeah, Lupin, Lupin, and Lupin, and Sirius. And, and all the horrors as well. The horrors are badass. I like Tonks.
1: Yeah, Tonks was great. Yeah, just like that, the whole, you know, just those people were, uh, those people were so brave, you know, and they, they fought knowing that they just had a very low probability of, of winning, you know, you know, cause really all Harry Potter is, is just a hero with a thousand faces, you know, that, um, but it's just a really original and mystical, magical way for that story to be
0: told. Every great story is really just a retelling of an older story. I mean, those are the ones that we know work, and you just put some more wrapping on them to make them look a little bit different, and then we're good to go. I also love Neville's evolution throughout the books, how he starts off as this totally incompetent kid. Then by the seventh book, he's leading a counterinsurgency by himself within Hogwarts. There should be a companion to the seventh book That just shows Neville's time in Hogwarts before Harry shows up. Because there's so much there. I would buy that in a second. Yeah, Neville. the the evolution of him as
1: a character is very interesting. Um, You know, everyone just became so emboldened in Harry's absence because they had to.
0: Yeah, and I also personally found a lot of connection between... And this is something that actually liberalized my views on Judaism a little bit. I found a lot of connection between wizards and Jews, especially when it came to the blood purity concept of the entire thing. Uh, There is definitely a preference in Judaism for two partners to be of the same blood. I know that, for example, my father, who's a rabbi, by his movement, if he were to ever attend a wedding where a non-Jew was marrying a Jew, he could potentially be kicked out of his movement. The rules are very, very, very strict. And Harry Potter really changed my mind on that. And that's something that I may have to contend with later in the game for myself. But it definitely helped to open up the idea that people are people, we're all equal. And if you're looking at it in this way where you can only have two pure boys marrying each other, first of all... From a genetic standpoint, that's an awful idea. Second of all, it's totally elitist, and third of all, it's just not cool. And, and it, it
1: was just, you know, it was it was her way of uh, of tackling, you know, kind of kind of racism, you know, which was obviously I'm very um, you know I'm all I'm all about the the ending of a racism and stuff like that.
0: That too, and it was also jarring. How and we'll get into a little bit of the lore of the book. So, spoiler if you haven't read the Harry Potter series. Although I feel like if you haven't, you're probably never going to read it, so I don't think it's too much of an issue. But Voldemort recruits a lot of those marginalized groups to his side in the war. He recruits the werewolves. He recruits most of the giants. He recruits those people to his team. And it's intriguing that this is someone who... Hated people who didn't have pure blood, and yet now he's yeah, bringing he was, together uh, his, all of these.
1: His own gain. That's you know that's uh, it's pretty pretty uh, pretty Hitler-esque.
0: A little bit, although Hitler also—I don't think Hitler really brought those castoffs in. He pretty well, much well, but killed he was them. Half
1: Jewish, the same way, the same way that um, that Voldemort was was half my mud, blood.
0: Yeah, his mom was a witch, and his dad was a muggle. And his parents weren't even in love. Honestly, he was pretty much the wizarding equivalent of somebody getting drunk, having sex, and then the dad being a deadbeat.
1: Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's been, God, it's been so long. I actually took, I actually took a Harry Potter class my, like, second to last semester at K-State, um. And I wrote, I wrote, uh, you know, like a final, you know, 15 page thesis paper over the the King's Crossing chapter in book seven.
0: With Harry and Dumbledore at the end. Yeah, that chapter is, it is jarring. Walking to your own death. And that concept of evading death is, honestly, the best villains are all the ones who are scared to die.
1: Yeah. Well, and what was interesting to me, the most interesting thing to me about that chapter was Dumbledore saying, you know, just because it happened in your mind doesn't mean it didn't happen, which is more of the, you know, the narrative and the truth and stories, you know, who's to say that isn't real or, or, you know, a part of your reality and self-construction.
0: Yeah, no, that's super, super fascinating. I can't remember if I wrote any papers on Harry Potter in college. I wrote papers on some weird things in college. I wrote papers on transnational football in college. I wrote papers on backyard baseball in college. I wrote papers on animorphs in college. I can't remember if I wrote a paper on Harry Potter. But I do love Harry Potter. And speaking of, I guess, scholarly Harry Potter works, is there one random theory that you particularly like, or that you're drawn to in Harry Potter, of how you reread the books after they first came out? Um, I mean,
1: I just love, I love the idea that Dumbledore is gay. Like, it just kind of ties the whole thing together for me, and makes, uh, makes his relationship, um, with, with Gilderoy, or, wait, not Gilderoy. um, Grindelwald. Yeah, Grindelwald, yeah, like, just makes that whole story so much more fascinating to me.
0: Another book, by the way, that should be written. J.K. Yes. Rowling. That would be another book that a lot of people would read. Just very, very entertaining possibilities there. There are a lot yeah, of theories...
1: endless possibilities. Like, I would read any story involving Dumbledore growing
0: up. Because we really don't know that much about him at all. Uh, and this is the guy who became the greatest wizard of all time. It's really kind of staggering how he threw himself into his studies, and potentially because of trying to keep those feelings inside of him, because we don't really know if he ever acted on being gay. I know it was sort of joked after the fact that J.K. Rowling just threw it out there to annoy some people. But even in the book series, we don't see him address it specifically, at least not to my recollection. So seeing that opportunity and seeing even gay wizards in general, because they're Aren't really any gay wizards. I think that it was sort of thought that the werewolves lupin were the allegory to that, but I actually think that lupin might be an even more jarring allegory, and that's the AIDS epidemic. Because when you have that kind of disease, that's something that never leaves you and does actually scar you for life. That was what I thought of when I thought of lupin. But I don't know, we'll see. the trouble
1: that I have with Harry Potter is it's an amazing story and it's fantastic, but you know, Rowling is not the best writer, in the like just in terms of like the, like her sheer like aesthetic. So it's, I never, you know, I never know how, uh, I never know how much credit to give her. You know what I'm saying?
0: The one thing that I will always give her credit for, and this is a luxury that she had because the book sold so well, or that the narrative really does grow with the readership. Like, if you read the first couple of books, they are very juvenile. They are very simplistic. Everything is pretty laid out, pretty easy. It's still higher-level stuff for a kid who maybe is 11 or 12, but it's pretty easy to get a handle on everything. And then that point in book three, when Sirius does his thing and turns the tables on everybody, that is where the series becomes an adult's book. That is where it really begins to elevate. And then the books get longer and longer, and I think part of it was that she was under pressure to produce these really quickly, probably too quickly, for the type of care that had to be done for books like this. And then maybe the writing quality diminished a little bit. But that is what it is.
1: The stories are still
0: amazing and powerful. And you compare them to some other books that it's often compared to, uh, this blows... Narnia out of the water for me. Uh, I even think it's better than Lord of the Rings, but I know that that'll be a controversial statement. Uh, It's just so, so good. Like, it's the best. Anyway. I totally agree. Yeah. So, we're, we're sort of going to end on a topic that is a little bit controversial right now. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on it quickly. I've really appreciated all your honesty throughout this entire podcast. I think that it's really refreshing to hear your thoughts on everything and your experiences and how they've uh, given you these viewpoints. So, with the DFS battle going on right now, DFS legality, uh, the game of skill argument sort of being shot down, and one fascinating thing that I'm seeing is... A lot of these issues take on a partisan lens. DFS institutions, for the most part, have been fairly maligned by both sides, at least from what I've seen. The
1: weird thing is, is that poker was outlawed by the Republicans, but it's been the Democrats who have been driving the, you know, legislation or the illegality of DFS, which makes no sense to me because it's, you know, infringing on a social liberty, which is not really the Democrats' mode of being.
0: Uh, yeah, I in Congress uh they all just do stupid shit. I don't yeah. even know. They none of them are principled. No, no, no. For sure. In well, your opinion positions. though, in good conscience, uh do you think that the game of skill exception is still pertinent to DFS?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like I think anyone who's played DFS for any meaningful amount of time would tell you the same thing. Like if you don't if you don't work at it, if you don't have a system, if you don't understand what you're doing, you're um you're gonna lose. Like, you'll just lose. Like, of course there's a little bit of luck. There's a little bit of luck in sports betting. There's luck in betting on horses. There's luck in seasonal fantasy football, seasonal baseball. Like, you're never going to be able to completely eliminate chance ever. You know what I'm saying? But it's absolutely a game of skill. I think poker is a game of skill too.
0: I would tend to agree with that. I know that I've seen a lot of criticism where at least one article that I think of is Drew McGarry on Deadspin who uh, played Daily Fantasy and he said himself, Daily Fantasy is a lot of fun and I had a really good time playing it. But let's say that Jamal Charles gets injured in the middle of a game. All of a sudden, your entire team is screwed. So from your perspective, that doesn't invalidate the game of skill argument just because it's a risk and in everything that there's risks. And yeah, yeah, you could at least just, cushion that's like,
1: it. That's just variance. You know what I'm saying? Like, if, yeah. like everything variance in it life has variance in
0: it i i would definitely tend to agree with that i have found it fascinating how hard everyone seems to be pushing on draftkings and fanduel though do you think that draftkings and fanduel brought it on themselves with the overexposure or do I, you th- totally yeah totally and they they
1: they didn't really regulate themselves well you know what i'm saying
0: Well, with the ethan Haskell incident
1: well, no, that's like, like, Ethan didn't, like, Ethan Haskell didn't do anything wrong. Like, an, indepest, an independent firm, you know, concluded that he didn't do anything wrong, that he didn't use that knowledge. But it's not like it, they didn't have, like, great, like, in like policy set inside their companies to make sure that something like that didn't happen. Um, that being said, you know, I'm generally a fan of both of the companies. I think that they've both done some things that were very ambitious, maybe a couple of things that were misguided, but, you know, I... I I, I think those companies in general have a lot of ambition and uh, especially, you know, DraftKings. Like, they've they just taken a, a shit ton of risks, really, in order to in order to grow their company.
0: It is kind of crazy because I was around and working a little bit more actively in this industry when Star Street was around, uh, when Draft Street was around, when well, Fanium did its thing as well, Fantasy Elite. So, it is kind of crazy how everything has consolidated into these two large corporations. What do you think is going to be the next big step? I have an idea of what I think it might be, but I want to hear where you think this is going and what you feel the next big iteration is going to be.
1: Um, I mean, it'll be, it'll either be, you know, a series of states trying to make Daily Fantasy illegal and then fighting against all of this lobbyist money. Um, or it'll be, you know, federal regulation. Those are, those are like, the two ways that it can go,
0: I think. Yeah. I know that some states are going to push back a lot against federal regulation because they make yeah. a lot of money on Daily Fantasy. In terms of entertainment, though, if it becomes federally regulated or state regulated, I think the next big thing is going to be a World Series of Poker style daily showdown. I think that that's going to be the next big step. At least, in my opinion, terms of the entertainment standpoint, uh, this is something that actually I talked to Grant about a while yeah. ago. Uh, so I, I think it's something that could definitely be a really natural pivot, especially since you know we see how World Series of Poker does. It got really big. It really popularized poker and gave more people a window into what's going on and. It this until might the, be a way the, to the give more window finals, daily fantasy. Like,
1: until all the legislation stuff happened it was supposed to be, like, broadcast live on, uh, on ESPN.
0: Uh. Well, that's rough. Uh, yeah. Hopefully they can figure out a way to have future finals broadcast live uh, because that would be great. And I, I would be entertained by it. I think that having an opportunity, like, getting a ticket to a live tournament, I know that there have been some of those in the past with other daily fantasy outlets, but that would be something to pay for. Oh, most definitely. That would be that would be crazy. Anyway, this has been really great. I have really, really enjoyed having you on. So thank you, Davis, for joining the Hammer Time podcast this week. It's really appreciated.
1: Yeah, dude, it was, uh, it was a great time. Thank you very much for, for having me and letting me talk about something more than football.
0: Yeah, it's great to talk about things more than football. Football's great, sports are great, but it's fun to talk about other random shit once in a while. So, thank you for listening. Feel free to leave comments at Ethan Ham on the SoundCloud. Download it, let me know what you think. I really want to continue bringing this up, making it better for the people. For now, I'm going to be signing off. Have a wonderful night, and thanks for listening.